When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 367, the Second Battle of Serta. Last time, on March 7, 1942, the Spitfires had arrived, and none too soon, given that the Hurricanes were being destroyed on the ground in large numbers because of their very inability to keep up with the enemy's 109s. Well, that had changed. But it wasn't like Malta suddenly had 300 of these new planes to take the fight to the enemy. No, it was simply another opportunity to survive for another day. The war continued. Meanwhile, the German and Italian pilots were upping their game by trying to take away from the defenders one of their abilities to attack convoys headed for Rommel. In February, the submarine base on Manuel Island had been found by Axis scouts, and every day after that, it was bombed. Indeed, the main building, the Lazaretto, the submarine base on Manuel Island, on its south side, was hit by Stuka, and all the windows were blown out. Later, parachute mines were dropped on the facility's west end, turning it into rubble. Before the month of February was over, the eastern end would be bombed as well. The men were running out of places to sleep and to take care of their animals, the ones that Shrimp Simpson had made them care for, in an attempt to give them something else to focus on, besides the thought that an invasion could come at any day. In time, officers and their men would end up sharing space in an empty underground oil tanker. It was underground, so relatively safe and empty, because supplies of all kinds were running low. Even Shrimp moved his office there for safety. As for the men still sleeping in the lazaretto, they had no windows or roof. Thus, the view was excellent of the stars on a clear night. Yet, despite the beauty, it was still a sign that the defenders were not winning the war. To be sure, the bombing of the three airfields continued as well. But in early March, the attackers' daily bombing of the harbor started to pay off. On March 5th, as three subs were stationed near the base, that day's attack ended with those subs now damaged and in need of repair. Worse, Shrimp Simpson's flagship, the stationary fuel barge HMS Talbot, was sunk. A few days later, another sub in the area was damaged as well. But the men's pain reached a whole new level when one of the bombs ended the lives of some of the crewmen's animals. 
namely a sow, a hundred rabbits or so, and one turkey. The men had become attached to these animals, but, like losing a comrade, there was only a short time for goodbye. And then, unlike losing a comrade, a delicious meal was about to be had. What else were they going to do with all that now-available meat? And the repair crews would need their strength, as they had many days of work ahead of them. Simpson knew that at least five subs were needed on patrol each day to keep an eye on the enemy. That was becoming harder. Also, the subs in station during the day had to submerge to the bottom to remain safe from the threat above. The war had turned to the enemy's favor once again. Those in support roles, like Suzanne Parleby, married to the infantryman John, had barely missed being bombed to death, so it was decided it was time for her to leave the island. Besides, she was now with child, and this was no place for a newborn, if Suzanne survived until her departure. And now we return to Adrian Warby Warburton. Being better at his job than practically everyone else, he was ordered back to Egypt to rejoin 2PRU, the reconnaissance unit. But during his time on Malta, Warby had flown 43 missions. This was an incredible amount, even for Warby. True, his gal Christina Ratcliffe was going to miss him, but her sense of dread would go with her man. This was because she worked in the control room at Las Carces and helped in plotting the board there. So she had first-hand experience of hearing about RAF pilots going down, and it happened far too frequently. Warby was good, great even, but he was not bulletproof. But before he left, Warby had to give his gal one more scare, not that this was his intention. On March 4th, Warby was returning from taking pictures over Palermo, near the northwest corner of Sicily. Christina was at the plotting board. Suddenly, word came into her earpiece that a 109 was quickly catching up to Warby. Staying calm, at least outwardly, Christina passed the word on to the man above the gallery. He told Warby over the radio, Look out, Stallion 2-7. Measure Schmidt's on your tail. With this done, Christina used her croupier stick to push Warby's plot closer to Malta, but also pushing the plot representing the 109s, yes, there was more than one, closer to Warby. After the next report came into her ear, she pushed all those pilots together. A few tense moments later, the message in her headpiece was now, plot on Stallion 2-7 faded. Warby had been shot down. In that moment, Christina's heart was cleft in twain, but outwardly she stayed calm and focused on her duty. There was nothing else for it. The people around her knew about her and Warby, but what was there to say? Men died every day around and over Malta. Then the calm, professional voice came to life again in her earpiece. Stallion 2-7 landed safely. The room flooded with relief. As for Christina, she felt her knees buckle and wanted to give in to that feeling of joy, but dared not. Others had lost loved ones already and would go on to lose more. Today, she and Warby had been given a reprieve. Later, when Warby and Christina were talking about this, she was serious, but Warby was laughing. He thought the whole thing was funny. As Christina later wrote, I didn't always appreciate his sense of humor. 
Turns out, Warby had waited until the last possible moment and then dove into some clouds. He waited for the Germans to get bored of looking for him, and then he landed, all in a day's work. A few days later, it's unclear if Christina was over her shock. She was sleeping in her apartment rather than the ERA shelter when a boom woke her up, shaking the entire building, and it blew off her apartment door. She jumped out of bed and ran downstairs to the street. The only thing she had on was a gown given to her by Warby, made from a parachute. A second later, a soldier was standing in the doorway of the flat next door, taking the best shelter to hand. She ran over to him, and he threw his great coat over her. When the smoke cleared, there was rubble all around them. Warby came round as soon as he could, and when she retold the story, the tears came with it. Warby, being Warby, replied with, Why didn't you just jump out the window? You had a parachute on. This was probably another time that Christina wanted to kill Warby herself. On March 19th, Warby left for Egypt, and he was going to be missed, at least by Christina and Hugh Pugh. The latter said after the war, Warburton was the absolute king of photographic reconnaissance. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing is all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Zooming out to look at Malta's larger place in the Mediterranean War, the convoy that had failed to get through in February had put the island in a bind. Food, fuel, and ammunition were running low. The gunners had already been told, only fire at the bombers, save your shells. As for Admiral Cunningham, he gave, well, more a grunt than a chuckle when he heard from the Chiefs of Staff the following. Our view is that Malta is of such importance both as an air staging post and as an impediment to enemy reinforcement routes that the most drastic steps are justifiable to sustain it. To which you can imagine ABC's reply, which is not printable. With that done, it was time to get to work. First, the convoy had to come from Alexandria. There was no way a convoy from Gibraltar could be risked, not after what happened last time, with the ships having to turn around rather than face being sunk. Next, all three services would have to be involved for supplies to have any chance of reaching Malta. 
With that established, the army in North Africa would make a feint to pretend to attack the nearest Axis airfields. Hopefully, those planes would stay close to home, in case their airfields were seriously threatened. Also, the RAF would send all possible bombers to hit Crete and Cyrenaica. Again, a bit of sleight of hand. As for the convoy itself, fighters from North Africa would escort the ships as long as they could, and then fighters from Malta would take over. In terms of surface ships acting as escorts, the largest force possible was put together, now under the command of Rear Admiral Philip Vian, Admiral Priham Whipple's replacement. Vian knew that this would not be easy, but his career so far had shown that he was a fighter. He had fought in the Great War and had, in February of 1940, ran down a German supply tanker, the Altmark, and rescued several hundred British POWs in Norwegian waters. Later, he commanded convoys heading to Murmansk to aid the Russians. In the summer of 1941, he had led a convoy to Malta and was able to sink a German sub who had been following them. But there had been darker moments as well. In October 1941, Vian was given the 15th Cruiser Squadron. His flagship was the HMS Nyad, stationed in Alexandria. His job was to get supplies to Malta, but also to help ABC with his attacks in the Mediterranean, and, of course, to stop supplies getting to Rommel. But now, back up to March 1942, earlier that very month, he had left Alexandria to sink an Italian cruiser that was reported to be damaged, yet this turned out to be a trap. On March 11th, Nyad was sunk by U-boat 565, just south of Crete. Vian lost 77 men that day. He switched his flag to the HMS Dido, but in time, he would have another ship sunk from under him. The convoy this time would be made up of four merchant ships, the Clan Campbell, recently repaired, the Pampas, the Talabat, and the Navy supply ship HMS Breckenshire, which had already made the run several times. And given Malta's supply situation, ABC, Hugh Pugh, and London needed all four ships to reach the island. But convoy MW10, as it was designated, did not have a propitious start. There were to be several divisions of surface ships protecting the convoy, but one coming from Gibraltar, which included the battleship Malaya, the carriers Eagle and Argyle, with the cruiser Hermione and eight destroyers, had to turn back a day into their departure, as the planes on the carrier were found to have defective long-range fuel tanks. Those planes were to have flown on to Malta, but not now. Time would show it might have been better to take the carriers into battle, even with the plane's limited range. As for getting them to Malta, that could wait another day. Overall, there would be six divisions of ships, and if or when the Italian service fleet showed up, five of the divisions would engage the enemy, while the sixth laid smoke just behind the convoy as it raced out of range. On March 20th, the convoy left Alexandria. The Italians quickly learned of this and so sent out an impressive fleet, actually outgunning the defenders. The next day, March 21st, at 2.30 p.m., the British spotted two heavy enemy cruisers and several destroyers. 
Vian put his plan into action. The cargo ships and escorts turned off their course, now heading south, with the remaining divisions laying smoke and firing at the Italian ships. After exchanging shells, the two Italian heavy cruisers backed off, hopefully to be followed by the British vessels. Why? Because the two cruisers were trying to lead their adversaries into a trap, that being the rest of the Italian fleet as it was closing in. Fortunately for the British, they stayed put. After all, their job was to make sure the convoy got through, not to chase down and destroy an enemy fleet. Regardless, at 4.37 p.m., the two heavy cruisers returned, this time with the battleship Littorio, a light cruiser, and several destroyers in tow. The fighting resumed, but the British only poked their respective head out of their smokescreen to fire and then returned to safety. This went on for two and a half hours. It would not be known for a while, but the British received more damage than they inflicted. As the ships were taking damage, and it was not clear what hits had been scored on the enemy, Vian, at 6.34 p.m., sent in his destroyers to launch torpedo attacks at 5,000 yards away, or 4,600 meters. Anything closer than this was met with intense fire by the Italians. Sadly for the Allies, none of their fish made contact. But the Italians had better luck. As the destroyer HMS Kingston was turning, she was hit in her boiler room and brought to a stop. Then another destroyer, HMS Lively, was hit, but there were no casualties. At 6.55 p.m., the Lotorio was hit, but the damage was slight. However, her float plane caught on fire, so to the British, it looked like a palpable hit from a torpedo. At 7 p.m., the Italians turned for home, as they had no radar and knew that darkness would only favor the enemy. As the convoy sailed on, most on board assumed the worst was over, that this was another Allied victory. But the trip wasn't over yet, nor were the Axis forces giving up yet. Between the darkness and running low on fuel, most of the escorts had to return to Alexandria. The convoy itself, along with the damaged destroyers and the cruisers Carlisle and Penelope and the destroyer Legion, made their way to Malta. But as the sun came up the next day, the air arm of the Axis was ready. Almost from the moment of first light, the convoy was attacked from above and attacked again. And when just 20 miles from Malta, the Clan Campbell was hit by several bombs and one torpedo, which killed 10 crewmen. Beyond repair, the Clan Campbell was abandoned and then sunk. As for the oiler Breckenshire, she was mostly carrying high explosive and kerosene, thus needed to get through. To counter the air threat, a smokescreen was laid down, but then came the battleship Littorio with her escorts. The oiler was told to gun it, now doing 17 knots and flanked by the destroyers HMS Southwold and HMS Beaufort, along with the AA cruiser Carlisle. When she was 20 miles away from Malta, where the Campbell had been abandoned, the ship called on Malta for air support. But at that moment, as we will see later, no planes were available. So, first a JU-88 came in and scored a hit on the oiler. Then an ME-109 fighter bomber came in and scored three more hits. The Breckenshire was now dead 
in the water, drifting towards Malta. This forced the HMS Penelope to leave Valletta Harbor to try to tow the oiler, but 20-foot waves made this impossible. When the lines broke, this left the oiler to drift ever closer to a minefield, one that had been set up to protect Malta. There was nothing for it but for two cruisers and four destroyers to also leave Malta to provide AA duty for the stranded ship. By this time, the Breckenshire had put down her anchor, keeping her, hopefully, from moving closer to the mines. The next day, March 24th, the HMS Southwold would try a tow. She got in close to get into position, but then hit a mine and was lost later that day. Turns out that that previous night, the Breckenshire's anchor had been dragged by the waves as the tanker moved ever closer towards the minefield. And during that day, the air attacks had resumed. Still, the weather calmed, so two tugs were sent out to the oiler. They got her tied up and began to move towards Grand Harbor. But then the winds came back and the two tugs could not get her into the proper position. So it was decided that the damaged ship would go to the Marksalock Bay on the island's east coast right above Halfar Airfield. Tied up to number one buoy, the tanker HMS Plumleaf went alongside the stricken Bowfire to begin unloading the kerosene and fuel oil. But not long after, the Germans showed up again and bombed the Plumleaf until she had to be beached in order to prevent her from sinking. Still, fuel began to be offloaded from the stricken vessel. Meanwhile, the Germans and Italians did not ignore the other two convoy survivors, the Talabat and Pampas. Pampas had been hit by two bombs when en route, but they turned out to be duds. Perhaps the ship's patron saint was working overtime. And again, this seemed to be the case as the Talabat and Pampas were bombed while in Grand Harbor on the 24th and 25th, but remained undamaged. But then came March 26th. German dive bombers came in and made hits on all three surviving ships in their two respective locations. That day, the air attacks started early and increased in intensity. Then, at noon, 300 Stukas flew over Grand Harbor, and by the time they were gone, they had left an inferno. At 2 p.m., one bomb hit the Talibut on the port side of the boat deck, and the explosive went through the electrician's cabin, the shelter deck, and main deck, exploding in the engine room, which started a fire. With all that was on board, including bombs and torpedoes, Captain Toft knew he needed help putting out that fire, so he asked a cruiser on the other side of his ship to shoot a hole into her so the water could come in and extinguish the fire. The cruiser crew needed the permission of an admiral to fire in harbor, but he said no. However, he would provide explosives to blow a hole in the ship. It was the best and only option at the time. Lieutenant Dennis Copperwheat of the HMS Penelope volunteered to put on a wetsuit and first cut a hole in the ship to remove as many bombs as possible, including... 16 torpedoes. Then he placed the explosives, and after they went off, the Talibut sank to the bottom of the harbor. The fire was put out. A more massive and uncontrolled explosion did not take place. As for the MV Pampas, she was hit 18 times 
before going under. A hell that cannot be imagined by anyone not on that ship. Either way, it seems that the Second Battle of Serta, the earlier naval clash, though technically a British victory at the time, was now working in favor of the Axis, as it had delayed the convoy enough for it not to finish its journey under darkness. Indeed, the carnage was not over. As the Italians headed back home, they were caught in a storm and lost two of their destroyers. Meanwhile, in Malta's dry dock, HMS Kingston was attacked a few days later, and her damage was soon beyond repair. Next, the destroyer Havoc was further damaged in port, so she was ordered to Gibraltar for repairs, but was forced aground in Tunisia. The crew, minus the one death, were interned by the Vichy French. But they would be released in November of that year due to Operation Torch. In all, Admiral Cunningham's desperate attempt to get supplies to Malta had been a failure. Of Pappas's 7,462 tons of supplies, only 799 tons were saved. Of the Talibat's 8,956 tons of supplies, only 972 tons were salvaged. As for the Breckenshire, most of her fuel had been successfully unloaded. As for the sunk Clan Campbell, well, nothing had been saved. Malta was still hard up for supplies, and the situation looked to remain that way for some time. Except it could not. Unless something changed, the island was ripe for invasion or surrender. Anything to save the lives of those on its shores. Next time, we'll see why there were not more British planes in the air, nor people unloading the desperately needed supplies. The reasons seem to point that Malta was all but finished as an Allied outpost. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to take a moment and say hi to the latest members. Let's see here. Uh, Chris Grobe from National City, California, James Hawkins from Princeton, West Virginia, and Jan Simpson from Berwick, Victoria in Australia. Thank you very much. It really does uh, go a long way here, so it's appreciated. As far as donations, there is Jeremy Thompson, Tim Cavanaugh, George Riker, if I'm saying that right, David Raphael, Chris Jones, and my favorite, the Gluefast Company, Inc. Look them up. Uh, support them if you can. Uh, maybe they do something with glue. I don't know. I haven't checked. Anyway, so uh, I just wanted to say thank you to all those people. And um, we've got a couple more interviews com coming up. And like I said earlier, we'll get Malta to Operation Pedestal. And then we're going to spend a heck of a lot of time on the Eastern Front. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.